1943 to 1971. The Doors album sales, as of this writing, are over 50 million units and climbing. Today, more than 30 years after Jim Morrison died, important new revelations are emerging concerning his tumultuous life, his tragic death, and his enduring legend. And the questions about him still linger. Who was he, really? Why did he destroy himself? Why was he failed by everyone who knew him? It wasn't all great being a rock god in the 60s. The tours were primitive and disorganized. The groupies were pretty, but they gave you herpes and a clap. The drugs and alcohol turned you into an imbecile. Your old lady slept around while you were on tour. The critics hated you when you got huge, and suddenly the press that had built you up into a deity began to tear you down. The Doors, at their best, were about as good as rock music ever got. At their worst, they were one of the most pretentious bands of the 60s. But no one ever had a clearer grasp of the complexities and ironies of the age than Jim Morrison. Living the times as he did, in full, senses-deregulated awareness, Jim understood the American 60s for what they were, an era of new religious visions, spiritual crisis, political unrest, race riots, assassinations, as well as a rare opportunity for change and reform. The decade's promises were never fulfilled, but some of its goals, such as integration, civil rights, and the bringing of East and West into closer harmony, are clearly still in process. Jim Morrison hitchhiked along this psychic landscape like a killer on the road, and the Doors music still has the uncanny power to poison every new class of ninth graders with its dark messages and raw power. What thirteen-year-old today can play People Are Strange and not hear it as a postcard of comfort from beyond the grave? How many dead rock stars have an annual riot at their tomb? In one of his unpublished spiral notebooks, Jim penned his credo in blue ink sometime in 1968. I contend an abiding sense of irony over all I do. Jim Morrison's famous Lizard King persona was a joke, but it was a serious joke, a cosmic put-on. Jim's serial evocation of the American desert and its reptilian underworld was part of his existential drive to include in the experience of life the omnipresence of impending death. In another notebook entry he wrote, Thinking of death as the climactic point of one's life. John Densmore, the Doors drummer, who was often frightened and bewildered by Jim Morrison's behavior, later observed that all the other California bands of the 60s preached the raising of consciousness toward a state of enlightenment. But the Doors' message, he wrote, had been all about endarkenment. No rock singer ever sounded more like he meant it than Jim Morrison. No one else could have released a subversive, anti-militarist song like The Unknown Soldier, with its hellacious screams of violence and despair amid the brutality of the Vietnam War. Alone of his generation, Jim's power depended not just on the surge of his poetry with the blinding charisma of his amplified performances, but also on the sheer, cussed rebel energy it took to stand up to society and challenge its hypocritical, constipated moral values in a time of dangerous upheaval. The reason for this is that, alone of the 60s rock stars, Jim Morrison didn't see his mission as a show. For me, it was never an act, those so-called performances, he said. It was a life-and-death thing, an attempt to communicate, 
to involve many people at once in a private world of thought. Jim Morrison took the inherent dread of the American 60s and made it even crazier, more desperate. Then he made it into a joke. And Jim's volatile essence was a rocket destined to burn out. Drugs would destroy the bravest and craziest of the rock stars. Revelation would turn into delusion. When his spiritual drive was exhausted, sapped by addiction, dementia, and legal battles, Jim's body followed soon after. Jim Morrison's tragic death at 27 in 1971 was the last in the sequence of rock extinctions that began with Jim's hero Brian Jones at 27 in 1969 and continued with Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, both also at 27, in 1970. The rock movement never recovered. The surviving heroes would carry on. New ones were born and also would die. But the midnight hour had passed when Jim Morrison flamed out. Whom the gods love, die young. The theater is dark and smoky. Outside, police sirens scream as the cops tear-gas the kids who can't get in. Suddenly, a white-hot light pierces the gloom, and a jellied scream pierces the night, ripping open an abyss of despair and fury. The doors are in town tonight, and Jim Morrison is acting out his epic pathos. The lead singer as an illuminating angel from hell. As he looks beyond the lip of the stage, he sees a dark jumble of chaos and disorder as the convulsive young mob of teenagers pulses violently before him. The energy the band is putting out may be awesome, but it is nothing in comparison to what is happening down in the audience, where the chaos was not an act, and often got much crazier than it did on stage. Jim Morrison's experience of the concert reversed that of the audience, with nightly scenes of mass rapture, anxiety, lust, fear, and joy. Jim learned quickly that the real energy in the room belonged to the audience, and this knowledge would compel him to document these Bosch-like fantasias for posterity in his film Feast of Friends. There is something awful, deeply moving, and terribly human in the tragical history of Jim Morrison. On the surface, it's a story of how the excess of fame and unlimited freedom ruined a young American poet. Looking deeper, it becomes clear that Jim Morrison's early fury and mania gradually evolved into a kind of artistic maturity, one that was more keenly experienced and aggressively lovely, and prophetically fatal. This book seeks to replace the myths and the lies that have overwhelmed the legend of Jim Morrison with new reporting and a reconsideration of both the known facts and the wild, unsubstantiated rumors. The portrait that emerges in the end reveals a damaged, fiercely loving, deeply compassionate man who overcame his self-destruction through a body of darkly beautiful work that echoes down to us today, with its fatal glamour and spiritual power still intact. Mr. Mojo still rising. Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Book One, Jimmy. Chapter One, The Lizard King's School Days. The devotion of the greatest is to encounter risk and danger and play dice with death. Nietzsche. 1. Indians Scattered 
What the hell was it with Jim Morrison? Why was he so fucked up? Did something occur in his past, in his childhood perhaps, that compelled him to behave like that? How could it have happened that this cool, talented guy, one of the great artists of his generation, morphed into a fucking monster and then immolated himself? Anyone inquiring more than superficially into Jim Morrison's life immediately realizes that the story of his childhood is crucial to understanding what happened to him later. First, he remained very childish for his entire life. Of course, for the rock stars who came to fame and fortune very young, what else was there for them to do? Second, when Jim joined the doors and began performing in public, he abruptly severed all contact with his family and never saw his parents again. Third, his early act was a graphic pull-no-punches rewrite of the ancient Oedipus legend, in which he sang of killing his father and fucking his mother in front of tens of thousands of his fans. Why did Jim Morrison hate his parents so much? Why did he hate himself? How was he able to create such pure American music out of his own anguish? Why did he end up with a crazy girlfriend who was an even heavier character than himself, who tried in vain to control him, who may have killed him in the end? The problem with answering these questions is that Jim Morrison's troubled and problematic post-World War II childhood within the sheltered, close-knit world of military families has been one of his story's most closely guarded mysteries. His parents, Admiral George S. Morrison and Clara Clark Morrison, have never commented publicly on their notorious firstborn son. Jim's brother and sister have been equally reluctant to speak of their brother. Whether fear of scrutiny or a desire for privacy drives this steely reticence, any inquiries to the Morrison family concerning the late rock star and poet